Welcome to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. I'm Sarah of Sarah's Bookshelves. Each week, I talk with a bookish guest about two old books they love, two new books they love, one book they do not love, and one new release they're excited about. We're going to get real and sometimes a bit snarky about all things books. If you like the show, I'd love it if you follow the show in your podcast player, spread the word to your reader friends, post about it on your social media, or support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Sarah's Bookshelves. Supporting the show on Patreon gets you access to bonus podcast episodes and lots of other goodies. There's also a link in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. Let's get rolling. I'm thrilled to finally bring y'all a behind-the-scenes episode about a topic that has been requested many times, and that is book cover design. Our guest expert today is Karen Horton, former art director at Henry Holt and Metropolitan Books, which is an imprint of Macmillan, one of the big five-slash-four publishers. We're sort of in the middle of some of this right now. Prior to her current job as a creative marketing associate at J.P. Morgan, Karen was an art director and book cover designer with more than 15 years of experience working in the book publishing industry. Prior to moving over to Henry Holt, in 2016, she was the senior designer at Flatiron Books and was an art director on staff at Little Brown. Over the years, she has also worked as a freelancer and consulting art director for a variety of publishing clients. Welcome, Karen. Hi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you. Well, I'm so glad you're here. And I have to give everybody our little backstory that Karen started following me on Instagram a couple years ago, and I've had her name sitting in my list of possible guests for a while. And I'm so glad that we're finally getting to go behind the scenes of book cover design. And I pulled my Patreon community for questions for you. And they had lots of questions. So today's questions are going to be a mix of my questions and questions from our listeners. That, that sounds really fun. I, I would love to hear what, what the people want to hear. All right. So let's start off with a little bit of an overview of the process. Can you walk us through the high-level process of designing a book cover? And then I have some questions specifically, too, that I'll jump in with along the way. Sure. I'll start by saying that the process for book cover design and the steps and parameters of it very much is dependent on the publishing house and the imprint. It can really vary, but from my experience, I would I would say that the majority of publishing the big 5, the process is generally kicked off when there's a launch meeting. At the big trade book publishers, there's generally two to three seasons a year. Every season, the editors and the sales team and pretty much everyone that is involved with the production and sales and marketing of a book is at this launch meeting. And it's usually then that everyone hears about the AMD and what maybe the expectations are for the book along with a synopsis. How far in advance of each season does this meeting happen? You know, it's been changing. And I would imagine that it's even changed further in the last few years since COVID and also with far more people being remote in general. Sure. You know, the timelines change. It used to be for me, generally launch was when you first heard about the books But then later on in my career, 
it was not uncommon for a publisher or an editor to already want a book cover to present at launch. Oh, interesting. So they'll reach out to you before you even get to launch meeting. Right. Okay. And is that more common now, you think? I think so. I I think with the rise of Bookstagram and books being unveiled on TikTok, there's so much more um, attention paid to marketing of the, the book jacket. Right. And I think that if hypothetically... Um, one of the big news publications wants to do a roundup of books to look out for. Oh, sure. You know, more than a year off. It might look better if there's already a visual. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And actually, I'm thinking of, I just saw a roundup of 2024 books that had books, I think, all the way through May of 2024 already with all the covers. Yeah. I mean, I... I wouldn't be surprised, though, if some of those books maybe were scheduled to release earlier and due to various (laughs) circumstances in the world, maybe pub date got pushed. But I started to feel the longer I worked, the sooner people wanted to see covers and the seasons got squished and there were a lot more drop-in titles or crash titles. What is a crash title? I like that name, by the way. (laughs) A a crash title is specific to a book that comes in and it's not initially affiliated with one of the, that year's uh, seasons. Oh, okay. It probably wasn't in the catalog. Okay. And oftentimes it's either by an author that is very famous or it's something that is very timely. Like a celebrity memoir or something, like a big celebrity or a political memoir? Yes, potentially that or a nonfiction expose on a topic. Ah, They're supposed to be a rarity because when they happen, pretty much everybody has to stop what they're doing. All hands on deck. (laughs) Yes, all hands on deck. So we're at the launch meeting. The books get presented. What happens from there? From there, depending on the structure of your art department, usually the designers on the team would meet with their creative director. They would share their wish list of, you know, the books that resonated most with them, or maybe they're picking a certain title because they've mostly done fiction for the past few years and want to challenge themselves by working on a genre that is outside what they usually get to work on. Which cover designers are designing which books is not assigned, is what you're saying. It's like you kind of lobby for the book you want? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And so the culture at every art department I've worked in is very different. Sure. Different creative directors like to handle their list differently. And also... Budget comes into play. I've worked at places where we were told we needed to try to keep things in-house to save on cost. And I've been in a position where we have to rely on freelancers because there's just such a sheer volume of work. You know, it's not sustainable for it to all be done in-house. 
Is there one that's more preferred? Like for your biggest title of the season, is it more likely to be designed by an in-house designer or a freelance designer? You know, I think that often depends on the publisher. There's a lot of pressure when it comes to the anticipated big book for a company. And sometimes that's partially because they paid a lot for it. There's a lot riding on it. It's not uncommon for a publisher to A, want to ensure they have a volume of options and B, possibly go outside of the department just because they really want something special. Sure. They want something that is memorable and is not like, or at least so they say in the beginning, not like anything else they've ever seen. And sometimes uh, publishers will will ask a creative director to give the project out to five people and don't tell any of them. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Which I don't like that. I don't like pitting designers against others. And I also don't like withholding that kind of information from a freelancer. Sure. It's sort of an auction almost that maybe the designers don't know they're participating in. Right. And do they get paid whether their cover's chosen or not? Um, It depends on the agreement, but usually the contract is that you only receive the full amount if a book jacket is approved. Okay. Oh, this is so interesting. This is not what I expected at all. So there's a, there's a kill fee clause usually. And some places, I think the kill fee could be 50%. Some might be lower, a little higher, but I think it's, I found it to be kind of standard industry practice that if your jacket doesn't doesn't get chosen, but you went through the process, you went through three rounds to try to get it right, you should be compensated in some way for your time. Yeah, absolutely. So how many in general cover design options are you looking for for a specific book? I think that a first round should be a minimum of three options and could be as many as 10. Oh, wow. I think six is a good number. You know, it varies from place to p- place. I've I've heard that at Knopf, I don't know if this is still the case, but I heard that the designers only present one jacket. Oh, wow. Which is so different. But there's just such a huge amount of talent that's been in that department over the years that I, that I guess the trust is there for their designers to put their all into one, one option. And once it's determined that a particular cover designer is going to work on a specific book, does that cover designer read the book cover to cover or are they given more of a synopsis to work off of? It depends. I think when and if a manuscript is available, you always want to share it with the freelancer. I think that if you're assigning a book jacket to an outside freelancer, you know, your first shot at it and you're assigning it to them right around the time of launch, you would provide them with all the same information as you would um, somebody on your team. If you're calling in a freelancer to jump in on something that has already gone five, six rounds and you're in a bind and you're up against a pub date and you just, you really need something quick and you need somebody to satisfy 
a wish from an author or an agent, there might not be time to ask them to read the novel and you may just give them, you know, a brief synopsis and a little bit of a brief as to what the tone might be and how they want to market the book and, you know, what kinds of books is this title going to be sitting amongst in the stores? Okay. So let's say that the cover designer is is going to read the whole book and has the time and all that. What sort of direction is the designer given as far as what do we want the cover to be like? Like vibe, color scheme, particular genre markers, and who gives that direction? Does it come from marketing? Does it come from the editor? It can come from both. I think often there's a cover brief or, or cover concept memo that often someone in the art department would have created and and they would encourage the editors to have the author fill this out as well as add in any additional notes that might be relevant. So the author can on the front end make their opinions known of hey I'd love love this color scheme or this kind of vibe whether that's followed or not is another question. We'll get there. <laughs> right. But I, I I think it's very customary these days to include authors in the thought process behind the cover. Well, it's probably a lot easier to include them on the front end than to go in your black box, come up with covers, and then have the author be like, huh, this is not what I was thinking at all. (laughs) And oftentimes, you know, an author may have a visual in their mind, and you might have somebody that designs beautiful, beautiful jackets, but they're just not right for the book. Sure. Or sometimes I I shouldn't make it sound like the author's opinions lead the cover design, because I think you might want to surprise an author like, oh, I didn't think of this, but yeah, it clicks. All right, let's get to the big million dollar question that everybody asked to please cover on this episode. And I'm going to have some follow-up questions for this too, but who truly makes the final decision about a book cover? Ooh. I know, right? (laughs) Again, it depends on the person. Yeah. And it depends on their contract. So let's dig into that a little bit. So Does how successful or well-known an author is play into how much control that author has over their book covers? It's very possible. Back when I used to work on a lot of book jacket designs for James Patterson, he was very involved in the process. And I I believe it was worked in his contract that he had uh, final approval. Okay. So that can be stipulated like by the agent. I think so. Yes. I think a a lot of authors do want to have that control and I understand it. I'm thinking of two examples. So I just interviewed Liz Nugent who wrote Strange Sally Diamond. Have you heard of that book? No. It's she's an Irish writer. So oh. cover design came up in our interview totally randomly. And she's the last interview I recorded right before I talked to you. So <laughs> She had some interesting things to say. So she said that she did not have any say in her book covers until like her fourth or fifth novel. Interesting. So is that common? Like a debut author will have very little say 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. But I think a lot of editors care a lot about having their authors be happy. Oh, sure. So even if it's not in their contract, nobody wants to be forcing a jacket down an author's throat. No, I agree. My other example was Ann Patchett, who I know for her last two novels and her latest essay collection, she totally did the covers. Really? From what I understand, they are essentially cover versions of paintings she liked. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) Huh. Yeah. She said that in an interview somewhere. Oh. So, I mean, she's obviously a very well-known author. So I'm like... Yeah. And she has a bookstore, right? Yes. In Nashville, Parnassus. Right. Yes. So another question that came up when I was talking to Liz Nugent, do authors get more input into the covers of their home country's editions than they do a foreign edition? So Liz was telling me she did have say in her most recent UK cover and had no say in the US cover. Interesting. Have you ever come across that before? No, but every now and then there will be an author that or an author or a publisher that prefers what the UK did. Right. And the, and it's possible either adapting it in some way for the US edition or just flat out trying to get the rights to that same cover. But I think that's rare for them to be in sync. That's interesting. I think that there's a perception that the design sensibilities of people in the UK differ greatly from the US and they are distinctly different markets. And what would be successful in one wouldn't be in the other. Based on your experience, would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I don't want to say anything bad about, but I, I think I, I, I probably very often thought our U.S. version of a jacket was better than the U.K. There's definitely been the flip side of that as well. Sure, absolutely. What about the sales team that has to go sell this book to indie bookstores, for example? How much say did they have in a cover? Like, if a cover comes to them kind of, hey, this is going to be the cover. And they are like, oh my God, I can't sell this. Does that ever happen? And how does that work? People in sales potentially could have a big role in the cover design approval process. They definitely have the power to kill a jacket. Interesting. Again, it depends on the house. Not everywhere is the same, but I think generally if you work in a commercial uh, adult trade publishing division. I think that for big books, you definitely want the people in sales to be excited and be an advocate for the book. So I think it's not uncommon if a book is a top tier title of the season that a publisher may show a few variations of a jacket to sales earlier than later. Oh, interesting. Okay, so they have a much bigger role than I think us regular readers would have imagined. I think so. And I also, I think there's more uh, cooks in the kitchen these days. Yeah. Let me ask you this, really getting down to brass tacks here. Who does not have the power to kill a cover? 
a small indie probably wouldn't have as much power as, let's say, a book buyer for Barnes and Noble. Oh, okay. But I don't know if that's still still the case because I feel like indies have really evolved in the last few years and I think are very important to a book's success. And Barnes & Noble, some may argue, is not the place it used to be. Right. So if y'all send out, say, very early galleys to indie bookstores and you get a bunch of feedback from the buyers about a cover, will you go change that cover for before the release date? If it's neg- very negative feedback? Yeah. Potentially. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. It depends how how swayed a publisher or editor. Or if the author is dead set on the cover and has it in their contract. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, I, I, I've definitely been in positions before where very late in the process, maybe as late as when the book mechanical is being made and it's due to the printer, you may get feedback that the book buyer at Barnes & Noble, I think her name was Cecily, that she doesn't like that jacket or she doesn't like the color white. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. And I've seen, I've seen gorgeous jackets having to be redone in the 11th hour. Oh my gosh. What a stressful situation. You would think that like, since it's one person at Barnes and Noble, we just have a list of all her likes and dislikes and can factor that in on the front end. I have to add the caveat that I never personally had interactions and this is all hearsay. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But It's very, very interesting how there was one woman in the industry that had a reputation for being able to kill a jacket. Yes. And it's not even someone who works at a publisher. Yeah. That's totally unexpected. Yeah. And I've heard it be explained like this. The book buyer says, if you keep that jacket, I'll buy 2,000 copies. But if you change it, I may buy 100000 Got it. Okay. Those numbers are completely made up. Right. But they would be for Barnes & Noble as a whole because we know that an indie will buy like 12 copies or something. <laughs> right. Right. We're talking large, large quantities that potentially could weigh heavily on whether or not a book you know, can reach the masses. Absolutely. Prior to you know, sites like Bookshop. Right. Right. How does kind of two big things impact the type of cover a book gets? And I'm going to explain this in a little more detail. So number one, the book's marketing budget. And number two, again, how big the author is. Mm-hmm. How do, do those two things impact like the time and effort that gets put into a cover, the maybe experience or cachet behind a certain cover designer that book gets? Maybe whether that cover is a completely fresh new design or if it's more of like a stock art type of thing. How does the marketing budget and the bigness of the author factor into those things? I would say that in modern days, in the you know, in the last five years, with social media being so prevalent, marketing directors could potentially be very involved and have a say. I don't think the marketing team was usually present at book jacket design meetings, uh-huh. you know, through most of my career. I think at Henry Holt, 
around the time that I was I was leaving, I I believe we they added in one of the marketing directors to be present at the jacket meeting because they realized that it is important. And, uh, and as, as soon as there's something to latch onto for the book jacket, often the marketing team is trying to think of creative ways to integrate that into some kind of promotional campaign. Sure. Are there books that do use kind of stock art as their covers? Oh, yeah. Okay, because I, I feel like I've noticed things like that. Like, oh, that cover, is that the exact same image as this other book? Uh, yeah, you're right. You are absolutely right. And I'm guilty of it. I don't know why, but I, I'd say in the last decade, a lot of departments have cut their budgets for art. And they may have a corporate licensing agreement with Getty or Shutterstock. And you are very much encouraged to utilize that. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's very hard to get the o- approval to be able to commission anything that's more expensive than like $2,500. Wow. Interesting. You would think in the age of TikTok and Bookstagram that the budgets to do book covers would not be getting cut. I don't know. I mean, I think that traditional book publishers, the print industry, I think they had a a hard few years, especially around COVID. Sure. And right before COVID, there was all the stuff happening with shipping and paper and the printers. But I assume too, and tell me if I'm wrong, for like the lead titles of a season for a particular imprint, they're going to get approval to get a unique design? Yes, I think I think usually. And I feel like in maybe around like 2001, 2022, I think that there was a huge increase in commissioned illustration and book jackets that really looked tailored to that book. Sure. Especially for debut authors. I think not until the age of Instagram did debut authors get the same kind of, if, if it was going to be a big debut. Right. And I feel like like last year, I mean, some of the biggest books of the year were, deb- were debuts. Lessons in Chemistry? Yes. You know what? I love it. Yeah, me too. I think for so long, there was a small population that was dominating the New York Times bestseller list. And I think it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I couldn't believe how much incredible, wonderful books there were out there in the world outside of the bubble that I had previously been in. Yeah. I've traditionally read a lot of debut authors and try to have them on the podcast. And we do a whole episode every year just spotlighting debuts. I love debuts. Me too. I have a problem with always wanting what's new. Even though I have plenty of books that were highly recommended that are sitting on my shelf. You know, I used to have a bad habit of being in bookstores every Tuesday, looking at the new releases, I was always very swayed by, you know, what came out shiny and new, of course. And especially if it got 
rave reviews from somebody I trust. Sure. I I think that's a common heavy book nerd problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So switching gears, why do paperback editions get completely different covers than the hardback editions? Like there's almost like a, a redesign of the cover entirely. So what is the thinking behind that? It depends on where you are. But oftentimes, every season you have a hard, soft meeting, and it's determined based on potentially how well a book sold in hardcover, whether or not that hardcover jacket would be adapted for paperback. And usually if if it was adapted, it would be utilizing the same jacket design, but making room for a blurb, let's say. Oh, okay. Why would a publisher decide to use the same jacket design from the hardcover to the paperback versus a different one? Recognizability in the market. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm blanking right now on it, but there there's were definitely some memorable book jackets and they were they were connected with books that sold well. Sure. So Given the recognizability in the market, which I totally understand, why then would a publisher do a different cover for the paperback? Because I feel like that's more common. I feel like I I can't even think off the top of my head of a book that has the same cover design on the hardback cover and the paperback. Well, there's also, there's different philosophies. There are people that would also say that the target demographic for a hardcover is different than a paperback. Oh, yes, that ma- that makes complete sense. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's really interesting. Uh, people used to joke that if a book sold poorly, it's the fault of the jacket. It had a bad jacket. <laughs> but if the book sold well, the author's brilliant. Yes. Oh, that is frustrating for y'all. <laughs> so, let's talk a little bit about trends. How do you trends in book covers factor into your process as far as coming up with the design for a book cover? And in particular, books within specific genres tend to have certain trends. So for example, like historical fiction, the two women on a bench looking at the back of them. Right. Like the what I call the thriller font for thrillers. I don't yeah. even know how to describe it, but it looks kind of slashy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like romances, you get cartoon character people. Do you all talk about trends like this in your meetings as far as figuring out a direction to go in for a design? Or does this just sort of come out the back end? No, I I actually think that there often would be a book, like let's say prep. I don't know if you remember that book jacket. Oh yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Um, it would, there, every, every year there just would be this one book that keeps getting mentioned like, oh, it should be like prep. Yeah. Oh, eat, pray, love. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> what are some other ones you can think of that had that effect on the market? I, I remember back when I was working on the James Patterson books, there was what some people would call a big book look. And that usually means that it's the kind of author that gets a two-line treatment of their name and their name and potentially the title of the book are pretty much as large as they could be. And I think part of this is also potentially about how a book might be shelved. 
making sure that a an author's name is very prominent, especially if it's an author who has a proven track record. Just while you were talking, I pulled up my best books of 2021 list. Uh-huh. And Paula McLean's novel, When the Stars Go Dark, her name is two lines and it is the largest thing on the cover. It is larger than the title of the book. Mm-hmm. Taylor Jenkins Reid and Malibu Rising, about the same font size. Yeah. But The Paper Palace, which is a debut novel, mm-hmm. the author's name is much smaller than the title of the book. Same with The Push, Ashley Audrain. Both of those turned out to be massive debuts. I, I, I think you're correct. And I wouldn't be surprised that when it comes time for those debut authors to have their next next book, their name is going to get bigger. <laughs> okay, hold on. Let's, we, can, we can test this. Okay. <laughs> Ashley Audrain came out with her sophomore novel this year. I'm looking it up on Goodreads right now. I mean, I can kind of picture the cover, but I can't remember. Okay. So now she has graduated to equal name and title size fonts. Maybe next one she'll get bigger name than title. Yeah. Oh, this is so interesting. I had no idea this worked this way. All right. So on the topic still of trends, do you all, and us, you all meaning like publishers, look at sales data for specific styles of covers and then use that to make decisions moving forward? Like these color schemes are doing well. This font is doing well. This theme is doing well. Like, like for example, the, the historical fiction covers of two ladies on a bench looking at them from the back. Mm-hmm. Y'all look at sales data and say, oh, yes, these actually sell well. So we're going to keep doing this. Yeah, I don't think usually it's the art department that is looking at that data, but I I believe editors and publishers are very in tune with that. Okay. And this may not be an art department decision. How does a publisher decide maybe when a trend is played out and it is sold really well for a while, but like, okay, now it's getting to be sort of a joke that every book like this has this kind of cover and we should do something different. Oh, absolutely. The publisher at the last place I was at every now and then would say something like, oh, but remember, by the time this book actually is out on the world, that trend will be overkilled. Right. Two years will have gone by. (laughs) Right. There was a period where there were a lot of other publishing houses that were trying to emulate the aesthetics of Riverhead hardcovers. Yes, they do make beautiful covers. They do, yeah. I'm thinking of Britt Bennett in particular. Right. The Mothers and the Vanishing Half. Yeah, I think both of those jackets went into paperback adaptations, if I remember right. I think you're right. I think I remember seeing one of the Mothers in paperback. I have them in hardcover, but actually this leads me to one other question that I had not thought about in advance, but thinking about Britt Bennett, her two novels very much fit nicely together. Is that a decision that is made sort of consciously like, hey, we want this particular author's books to have a coherent theme between the covers of their multiple of their books? Yeah. For example, the author Jenny Lawson, I think that she has sort of had... Dead animals? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I assume when this happens, it, it, it only happens for authors of a certain cachet. Yeah. I mean, Samantha Irby, I mean, that's a little different because I think they're they're more like essays or... Like humor essays. Yeah. Yeah. 
But like Brent Bennett has only written two books and she's already gotten this treatment. All right, let's move on to your book recommendations. As usual, Karen is going to share two old books she loved, two new books she loved, one book she did not love, and one upcoming release she's excited about. Karen, tell us about the first old book you loved. The first old book I loved was A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. There was something very unusual in the way the story was narrated. And there was a mystery element. It was alternating between the life of a 16-year-old schoolgirl and her great-great-grandmother, who was a feminist uh, Buddhist nun over 100 years old that was imparting wisdom throughout the book. It was really interesting how the different timelines were interwoven. I think the beginning chapter starts with a uh, a Hello Kitty lunchbox that washes on the shore. Yes. (laughs) Which is very unusual, I think. Possibly as a remnant of the tsunami. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just, I felt like the book was touching upon so many different issues in an, in an unusual way. I have not read this, but that's what I read about this. <laughs> yeah. And I almost, I mean, I almost didn't continue with it because the beginning, it was a little sexual, I, if I remember correctly. And it, oh, okay. Interesting. I wasn't sure where it was going. The interesting thing that I saw about this book that I feel like doesn't, you don't find together that often was it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, which are both very much like critical darling awards. Also won a Goodreads Choice Award, which is very much not a critical darling award. <laughs> right. That's a tough thing to do both of those things. All right. That was A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. And tell us about the second old book you loved. The second old book I loved was The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Safan. This one I, I think is an ode to book lovers and it's a story about a book within a book and it's set in 1945 in Barcelona. There's an antiquarian book dealer and there's a little bit of a magical mystery element to it. And I think at the time that I read the book, I mostly had only read um, white male authors up until that point. It was a different perspective and it was a different style of writing than I was used to. For me, I had a big gap in my reading just because I think when I was in high school and maybe even college, I just wasn't exposed to my kinds of books yet. This was one of the books that for me started my love of fiction again. Sure. I have obviously seen this book around so much. It's sold millions of copies. I have never, I don't read a lot of historical fiction, so I'd never really jumped on it. And I never actually knew what it was about until I was researching for this show. I think it sounds so interesting and I added it to my TBR. Oh, thank you. That's The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon, and that came out in 2001. All right. Tell me about the first new book you loved. The first new book I loved was Thicker Than Water by Carrie Washington. I love an honest memoir, and this was one of those. And 
I'll admit I went into this not knowing all that much about Kerry Washington's life. I never watched Scandal. I mean, I definitely knew about Scandal and it was definitely referenced in a book jacket meeting or two. (laughs) I didn't know much about how important it was in terms of representation that show was. And I also didn't know many details about her political advocacy work. At the heart of the story, she's trying to unfold the mystery surrounding her birth. She always sort of had this feeling of not belonging in her family or something was off, but never knew. She just thought it was her. So that was Thicker Than Water by Carrie Washington. And tell us about the second new book you loved. Um, The second new book I loved, it's hard to say I loved it because the subject matter is, is very tough. But the book was called We Were Once a Family by Roxana Ascarian. The book centers around an incident, a horrible incident that happened back in 2018, where two mothers committed suicide and in the process killed, murdered their six adopted children. And the author of this book was an investigative journalist. And I think that she was one of the first people that was wanting to understand what happened and look further into the lives and circumstances that put these children in the care of these women in the first place. It's heartbreaking, it's upsetting, but it's also very eye-opening and there's just so much I didn't know or understand about the child welfare system in this country and foster care and which families are given second chances and who who gets to decide what a loving home is. The author takes such care in letting the birth families tell their story. And you see from what she shares that there was love in these homes and what you know, some of these families needed was assistance, not to have their children taken away. Sure. This has been on my TBR for a while for audio. I'm going to, I am going to listen to it. It's going to get to the top of the TBR. (laughs) That was We Were Once a Family by Roxana Asgarian. And tell us about the book you did not love. I'm in agreement with you on this one, by the way. Confederacy of Dunces. This book, I, I, I think won the Pulitzer Prize. It did. Posthumously, though. Right. So it was not published until after the author killed himself. And then it won the Pulitzer Prize after, obviously, he was gone. Yeah. Has that happened before? I don't know. And actually, I didn't. I, I feel like I probably knew this back when I read it, but maybe I'd forgotten I definitely had forgotten until I started prepping for this episode. And I saw that and I was like, oh, if I knew that back then, I totally forgot about it. But I remember this being one of those books that I would hear recommended, whether it was from professors or other students. It was one of those books that was like on the list of if you're a well-read reader, you would have read this. And I thought it was always presented as a comedy. It was. (laughs) 
I didn't find it funny. No, I didn't either. I I get it. I think when you enter in a book under like a false premise, (laughs) like it's hard to get over that. Oh, completely. A, I'm not even sure if I finished this book or not. I can't remember. All I remember is I deeply despised Ignatius, the main character. He probably was the most unlikable character that I've read. It felt like however many pages of complaining. Yeah. And maybe a mixture of, I feel sad for this person, but also this is maddening to read about. Yeah, it irked me. I don't think we're alone. I think this is probably like a love-hate kind of book where like people that loved it really, really loved it and people that hated it really, really hated it. But like this was one of those books that made me think something was off with my comprehension, that something was above my head that I wasn't appreciating about this book. Yeah, that's something I did not like about school reading Because I didn't love a lot of the books I read in school. No, that's why I think I was lost as a reader and I didn't really truly love books again until probably I moved to New York. All right. That was A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. And tell us about the upcoming release you're excited about. The upcoming release I'm excited about is The Cemetery of Untold Stories by Julia Alvarez. And I think it's coming in April of next year from Algonquin. I chose this book because this is an author that has been on my book list for some time now, and I regret that I haven't gotten to it. And this is an author that has been recommended by so many people that I respect their opinion. And there was just, there was something about the description, having like an element of mystery surrounding books. Yeah. It's cool. The premise is interesting. Yeah, it just sounded it sounded interesting. And I realized actually that maybe there's some parallels between this book and uh, Shadow of the Wind because yes, in that one, there's a cemetery of forgotten books. So maybe I I don't actually I I don't like cemeteries or graveyards or horror. (laughs) But but if it's a land of books, Yeah. So let me share what what the concept is for this. So the writer in in the book, the main character is a writer, literally buries her early drafts and unpublished writing in a plot of land in the Dominican Republic. And it's she calls it the cemetery of her untold stories. And then the characters like from the page, from the pages she's buried, then talk to each other. Yeah. And kind of rewrite themselves. And so you get all of their stories and that reminds me of a point of view in a novel I loved. I think it was, was it last year this came out? Unlikely Animals by Annie Hartnett. I recognize that title, but I never read it. She has a Greek chorus narrator that narrates part of the story. And it's all the dead citizens of the town from the cemetery. Oh. And it's hilarious. It was great. I never would have thought that would have worked for me until I read her book. So this actually sounds really interesting to me. That's The Cemetery of Untold Stories by Julia Alvarez coming out April 2nd of 2024. And I like to close out every episode by asking my guest one final question. What is the last five-star book you read? A Living Remedy by Nicole Chung. Oh, okay. It's a memoir, right? Yes, it's a memoir. And I, A, I like memoirs. I like well-written memoirs that are honest. And I, I gravitate to people's lives where they're trying to uncover 
truth of their past, but they don't have the privilege of having all the information. Right. And some of it will be always be lost. And I, I remember it was beautifully written, but also emotionally resonant. All right. That was A Living Remedy by Nicole Chung. Thank you so much, Karen. I learned so much today. (laughs) Thank you. This has been fun. The November Superlatives episode for patrons will air at the end of the month, and it will include Karen's picks for categories like her all-time favorite book cover not designed by her and her least favorite book cover trend. If you'd like to get this bonus episode plus others, you can support the show on Patreon. There is a link in my show notes and in my Instagram bio. And in two weeks, which is November 15th, Catherine and I will be back for the Fall Circle Back episode. Talk to you in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. You can find show notes with all the books mentioned in the episode, purchase links, and linked timestamps at sarahsbookshelves.com slash podcast. And that's Sarah with an H. You can also find me online at sarahsbookshelves.com, on Instagram at sarahsbookshelves.com, or via email at sarahsbookshelves at gmail.com.